minutes to look at this verse for two primary reasons. Number one, so that the lost would be saved this morning and you know who you are. Uh, And if you do not yet know who you are, I pray that during this, God's spirit would make it known to you and that today would be the day of your salvation. And secondly, I hope that for those of us who are saved, this verse would stir us up and renew a deep passion in our souls for Christ and a thanksgiving for what he's done for us. Because today we're looking at really the gospel. In fact, in Romans chapter 4, verse 5 is the verse we're going to be at. I think it is, if I may say this, the most important verse in the Bible. And certainly the principles that it teaches are the most important. If, in fact, if we take this verse out of the Bible and the verses that correspond to connect to it, we have no Christianity whatsoever. The entire Christian faith is defined in Romans chapter 4, verse 5. This is what that verse says. To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. That is the singular statement, the singular verse that sets all of Christianity apart from every other religion that's ever existed and ever will exist. That one phrase sets us apart from every system of thought, every clever argument, every claim for truth. It is the summation of us being made right with God. And as is our custom, I just want to take a few moments this morning and walk through this verse. And I want to do it backwards. I want to start at the end and I want to walk backwards to the beginning. I want to begin by just highlighting a few words first. The word righteousness. The word righteousness in this verse is key. Righteousness means being right. Uh, Doing what is right, being right, ultimately being right before God. And it's not just... Not just a matter of doing, external behavior, things like that. It's a state of being. You are, to the very core and depths of who you are, right. And you're right before God. You're righteous or you're not. Just as I can be Skylar and only be Skylar, I can be no one else. So too, in your soul, you must be right. You must be righteous, right before God, right in living, right in affections, right in sincerity, right in desires, all of those sorts of things. Now, the only way to get to heaven is to have righteousness. You will not ever be with God if you are not righteous. If you are not right in the very depths and core of who you are. Now, what is rightness? Who gets to define that? Well, the world doesn't get to define it right because it's shifting all the time in the world's eyes. You and I don't get to define it. The church doesn't get to define it. God has defined it. And he's defined it in his word, primarily in his law, hasn't he? God is righteous. 
And God is right at the very core of who he is. And so whatever he issues forth is righteous. And whatever he issues forth is right. Certainly in beginning with his law. If we keep his law, we will be righteous. If we live according to his law. And are molded and conformed to and shaped by his law. We will be right because we will be like God. Right. Righteousness to a very large degree is perfection. And perfection according to the standard of God as laid forth in the law of God. The problem is we can't be righteous, can we? None of us are righteous. And there we encounter humanity's first dilemma. Righteousness is required to be in heaven with God. And yet we can't be righteous because we have broken the law of God, haven't we? Paul's been laying that out in the first three chapters of Romans. Um, if you just flip over, I want you to kind of follow along with me the best that you're able. In Romans chapter 1, really verses 1 through 15, we might define as his prologue, his introduction to this whole letter. Verse 16 and 17 are essentially his thesis statement. He's highlighting what he's talking about, why he's writing, what he wants to communicate, and he's wanting to communicate the gospel in this letter. I am not ashamed of the gospel, he says in verse 16. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So I'm writing to you because I want to talk to you, highlight to you, clarify for you the gospel. Now in verse 18 of chapter 1, a major shift happens. He enters into the body of his work and he begins by expounding on what the gospel is and he begins where we ought to begin in discussing the gospel. Verse 18, the wrath of God. John Piper in a sermon once said, you will not rightly understand the enormity of the gospel if you don't first comprehend the wrath of God. And he's right. Now, the wrath of God implies several things for you and I. It implies that God has a sense of authority, doesn't He? And that He dispenses that wrath, that He's able to execute that wrath, and that contrary to secular Christian thought, He is a God of wrath. And we know this because the Scriptures tell us this, and we know He has the right to execute His wrath because He is the supreme Creator, all-powerful, glorious, perfect, righteous, holy. And we are accountable to Him as His creatures. It's a de facto state of existence for us. We're not just accountable to Him because He's more powerful than us or greater than us, us, although those things are true. We're accountable to Him at the most basic, foundational, fundamental level of being His creatures. In fact, that's what the rest of Romans chapter 1 is all built upon. God is the God of wrath. And He's a God of wrath towards sin. And He can be because He's Creator. And as Creator, we have to answer to Him. Let's look in Romans chapter 1. Verse 18, He tells us right up front, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So I just want you to highlight a few, few quick thoughts there. God, ungodliness and unrighteousness is what incures the wrath of God. So that's who we are, isn't it? 
We've already said from chapter 4, verse 5, righteousness is required and that is not us. We are not righteous. Paul goes on in chapter 1, for what can be known about God is plain to them, the ungodly and the unrighteous, because God has shown it to them. The, the great, grand, glorious God has made Himself known and relatable. Verse 20, for His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, those things have been clearly perceived, clearly known ever since the creation of the world in the very things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Paul's telling us right at the beginning here, God has made everything and His creation alone is enough to conclude He is the supreme, all-powerful, glorious Creator. And unrighteousness is trying to replace that truth. Notice verse 21. Although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. Just, just side note, because I can't help it. Take stock there from that verse alone how important it is to be thankful to God. What's the indictment here of the ungodly and the unrighteous? They don't honor God and of the equal same level, they don't give Him thanks. We are to be a thankful people. So they knew God, but they didn't honor Him as God or give thanks to Him as God, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools. And verse 23, exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and, and creeping things. We are an idolatrous people. Every one of us. So God gave them up. Verse 24. Because, verse 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator. Skip down to verse 28. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness and evil, and covetousness, and malice. They're full of envy, and murder, and strife, and deceit, and maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. And if you do not find yourself in that list, you are in a very dangerous place. Now, we often take Romans chapter 1 and we look at it and we say, yeah, that's true of all those ungodly, unrighteous people in the world. And Paul knows that's how we're going to take it. The Holy Spirit knows how, that's how we're going to take it. So he makes chapter 2 incredibly personal. Just in case you didn't make the connection that you are who chapter 1 is talking about, Paul brings it home in chapter 2. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on one another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? 
Or do you instead presume upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent or unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself. Here's the word again. On the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. In verse 11, he shows no favoritism. Verse 3 is most striking. Do you think you will actually escape the judgment of God? I am convinced most people who are exposed to the gospel think the answer to that question is yes. Whether they're a believer or not. They think that some way, by some means, in some form or some fashion, I will excuse myself, escape, or take care of myself when I stand before the judgment of God. That in some way, I'll persuade God of my goodness. In some way, I'll talk, talk my way out of it. I can do it with my teacher at school. I can do it with my boss at work. I can do it with my spouse. I'll just talk my way out of it. I'll blend in with the crowd like I do at church. I'll just kind of hide in the midst. They justify in their mind that in some way, somehow, they will escape God's righteous judgment on them, not realizing that they are storing up wrath for themselves. And why are they storing up wrath? Because we who judge practice the very same things. We find ourselves in Romans chapter 1. We find ourselves transgressing the law of God, don't we? We find ourselves sinning Exponentially. Paul's not done. In Romans chapter 3, he goes on in verse 9 and verse 10. He begins to quote the Psalms. We have already charged, he says in verse 9, that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. He says in verse 10, quoting the Psalms, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And I think I can say confidently that if there's not some measure of trembling at the thought of God judging you, your heart is dead. The description of the lost human being in verse 18 is that they do not fear God. They either don't think their sin's a big deal. They think they'll escape the judgment of God. They have presumed upon His riches and His kindness. And they think they're safe. Verse 19, he says, We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that, so that for this purpose, 
every mouth may be stopped and the whole world be held accountable to God. We are in a predicament. A predicament we must, we must understand for your eternal salvation. That we are not by any stretch of the imagination righteous. We've broken God's law. We've transgressed God's law. We are gossips and slanderers. We're foolish and faithless and heartless and ruthless. We are inventors of evil. Furthermore, we get bored with God, don't we? We're not talking about loving your neighbor as yourself. We're talking even about loving God with your heart and your soul and your mind, with everything that's in you. We don't even do that. We neglect our duties as Christians. We neglect our God. We don't seek Him or pray to Him or read about Him or pursue Him with the utmost eagerness and diligence. We are, by all accounts, the unrighteous. Do you realize, just for, just for a moment, contemplate with me, just, just please, let me, let me try to attempt to speak to your soul for a moment. Just, just for a second. Do you realize that at any moment God might usher in finality upon all of us? Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, he says, Behold, today is the day of salvation. That's a glorious statement. But you know what it implies? That one day there will no longer be a day of salvation. That that day will eventually come to an end. The sun will set on the day of salvation. And when Christ comes to, re to return and judge the world, which the Scriptures tell us He will, He will also usher in total finality. And in that finality, every person who's not found in Christ will be condemned for all eternity. And furthermore still, God will be perfectly right, perfectly righteous, perfectly just, and bringing to close the age of mercy. At any moment, with all the impending threats upon our fragile human life, heart attack, diabetes, car wreck, whatever you want to, coronavirus, plagues from Egypt, whatever, even more impending than all of those things is at any moment, any moment, the God of the universe may cease to loan us the breath in our lungs. And in that moment, when that does happen, because it will happen, do you suppose you will escape the judgment of God? Do you think things will be fancy for you then? There could be a very, very real possibility. Very real. That some of you sitting here today will think you go into eternity right with God and will find out your name has been cast down to the pit of hell forever. And there is no relief. There is no second chance. There is no getting out 
It's a place the Bible describes as weeping and wailing, as gnashing of teeth. It's a place where Jesus shares a parable about a rich man who dies and goes to hell and he cries out, I'm in torment in this flame. Just let me have a drop of water to cool my tongue. You know what the answer is? No. That's the God of the Bible in a very, very real and honest sense. And it's a sobering, sobering picture. How could God do such a thing? How could, how could God punish a person for all eternity for temporary sins? How could a good and loving God do such things? We'll now begin to understand the extreme extremity, the extreme weight behind your rebellion against the Holy God. The smallest of white lies. We know this, don't we? The smallest of white lies. Are worthy of an eternity separated from God. We are unrighteous. And finally, in verse 23 of chapter 3, Paul gives us the catch-all summarizing phrase, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Aren't you glad you came to church today? This isn't a game that we're playing. This isn't a hobby that we're entertaining here. This isn't just something that we're supposed to do. We are talking about life and death. And not life and death according to our opinions. Life and death from the very word of the living God. Righteousness is required to be in heaven with God. And we are by definition unrighteous people. And the judgment of God is coming. Back to chapter 4, verse 5, please. There's hope because there's this phrase in verse 5. And the phrase is, Him who justifies the ungodly. Which is a loaded phrase. Since we're unrighteous, if there's any hope for us to be with God, something else must occur. And that something else, the Bible says, is justification. So God will deal with every human being. And some He will deal with them in condemnation, and others He will deal with them in justification. Justification is a legal term meaning being made right with God. It's being pardoned of our guilt, which we've already established. We are that. Now to be made right with God then, we have to be pardoned of that guilt. What's tremendous in verse 5 is the one doing the justifying. It's God. And look who He's justifying. The ungodly. The ones who are the exact opposite of Him. Where God is godly, we are ungodly. Where God is perfect, we're imperfect. Where God is pure, we're impure. Where God is holy, we're unholy. Where God is righteous, we're unrighteous. He's looking at those who are the exact opposite of Him and He's justifying. Now the picture you and I should have in our minds of justifying is the legal transaction taking place in a courtroom. 
where a judge has to be convinced of the rightness of a sentence he or she is about to impose. But what makes verse 5 of Romans 4 remarkable is that it's the judge who's justifying. Which means it's not a, a lawyer on our behalf. And it's not your persuasive abilities. It's not your closing arguments in your court sentencing, your hearing that persuades the judge to be kind to you. It's the judge's own free will. It's the judge's own pleasure to look upon the guilty and pardon them. You and I need to be justified. But we need to understand justification does not ever come by our own efforts. Look in chapter 3 verse 20. By works of the law. No human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Absolute statement. A, a total statement. A statement of totality. No human being will be justified by works of the law. Skip down to verse 28 of the same chapter. We hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. We are most often the foolish Galatians, aren't we? We are Galatians 3, verse 3. Oh foolish Galatians, having begun by the Spirit, are you now going to be perfected by works of the flesh? We think and we think and we practice and we practice that if I'll only be good, if I'll only do this, if I'll only do that, so much of our relationship with God, so much of our standing with God is based on and determined by how good we've been this week. And the Bible's clear, your works, they don't figure into your salvation. They don't figure into your justification. You begin by the Spirit, you continue by the Spirit, you will end by the Spirit. Which is to say, God grabs you and sees you through for the rest of eternity. It is the judge who justifies. And there's hope because He justifies people like you and like me. How does he do that? Because if any judge in our country did that, we would decry corruption, right? Who bribed you? And why are you not doing what is right? And certainly that must be true with the God of the universe. Isn't there a standard of justice that if anybody should hold and practice would be God himself? And indeed there is. There's what John Stock calls the problem of forgiveness in his second chapter of his book, The Cross of Christ. How can God simultaneously extend mercy and yet also be just, uphold his justice? Because for God to deny or, or compromise his justice is to compromise his perfection and his righteousness, which means he therefore ceases to be God or at least a God that we can trust. He becomes more of a tyrant doing things in his own whim. So God must uphold justice. 
And yet at the same time, he can justify the ungodly. And the answer comes in verse 24 of chapter 3. Remember, all have sinned, all of us, in verse 23. We fall short of the glory of God. We don't measure up to God himself. And then verse 24. And all are justified by his grace as a gift. How does God justify? His grace. And His grace not earned. His grace freely given. Chapter 4, verse 4. To the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but his due. And yet justification in chapter 3, verse 24, is a gift of grace. The judge justifies through his grace. But how does he extend grace? It's through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Redemption, the ransoming. The price being paid in Christ Jesus. Notice verse 25. Whom God himself put forward as a propitiation to be received. By his blood to be received by faith. Propitiation means appeasement. A satisfying of the requirements. Martin Lloyd-Jones has a wonderful quote where he says, God is not passive in the cross of Christ. And the implications of that statement are astounding. God is not passive in the cross of Christ. He's incredibly active in the cross of Christ. Peter preaching in Acts chapter 2, his first Spirit-empowered sermon on the day of Pentecost in verse 23, talks about Jesus being delivered up according to the definite plan and definite foreknowledge of God. Who crucified Christ? God. Not only is God not passive in the cross of Christ, God is the executioner and punisher of Christ on the cross. Pouring out this wrath described in chapter 1 and chapter 2 that's deserving for us, that we deserve, pouring out that very wrath on Christ Himself. Christ, Jesus Bearing the penalty of our ungodliness. Our unrighteousness. The wrath that we store up for ourselves on the day of wrath. Christ drinks in the punishment for that. Jesus takes upon Himself. The tremendous verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. One you should have memorized. But I'm going to read it to you. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Righteousness is required. And we are not that. We are not righteous. So God the judge intervenes Himself and sends His Son to bear our wrath that in His death and subsequent resurrection 
we might actually be righteous. This is all of Christianity. That word propitiation in verse 25 is a glorious word. God put forth Jesus as this appeasement to satisfy his his justice, his punishment towards sin. Verse 26, we're told why. So that God might be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. Remarkable. Miraculous. Not thought of in the human mind. Something that can only be thought up by God Himself. To look at the unrighteous and the ungodly and to say, I have full right at any moment to cause the earth to open up and swallow them whole. At any moment, I can snap my fingers, blink my eye, hold their breath from them, punish them. I have full authority, full power, full right as the judge to condemn them. But I don't. Instead, I justify them. And I I deal my justice out on my son so that they will be made right before me. What a remarkable, remarkable truth. The question now becomes, how do I get a hold of that? How does that get applied to my life? How can that be true for me? Romans 4 verse 5 tells us, it's not done by the one who works. It's not gritting your teeth. It's not being better. It's not making resolution after resolution after resolution. This grace of God that justifies the ungodly through Christ is for the one who believes. Not an easy thing, but a remarkably simple thing. Your Bible should have a footnote at the bottom that says, that word could also mean trust. Believer trust. Who gets this free justification? Who gets this free righteousness that Christ secured? It's the one who believes in God. What does it mean to believe? It is certainly much more than mental assent, isn't it? This is where many of you are right now. Let's just be clear. It is so much more than just intellectually agreeing with the facts. Yeah, I believe in God. I believe God exists. Yeah, I believe Christ came and was born of a virgin, lived a perfect life. Yeah, I believe He died on the cross and resurrected. I believe He's coming back. I even believe that His cross is powerful enough to to save people and that God does save people. That's not the belief that's being talked about here. In one sense, it's nothing less than that. It is intellectual understanding and agreement of the facts. But that's not all that it is. 
This, this believing is not believing about God. It is actually believing God. Which is a major distinction. Yes, have belief about God. But also believe God himself. In other words, trust that God is telling the truth. When the Bible says believe in Jesus, believe upon God, trust God, it means trust and believe Him on a, on a personal, intimate level. I believe you're telling me the truth. I believe that you're good. I believe that you're going to honor your promise. I believe not just what your word says happened, but that you're not going to go back on your word. I'm putting all my eggs into your basket. I believe in you. This whole chapter is talking about Abraham. And Paul's contrasting Abraham and faith in Abraham with works of the law. And in verse 3, he reminds us of Genesis 15. The scriptures tell us Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And then he illustrates in verse 4, it's not the one who, uh, to the one who works, his wages are counted as a gift. Not as a gift, but as his due, as his payment. But to the one who doesn't work, but believes in him, believes God, trusts that God is telling the truth, trusts that God will keep his promise, both his promise and his threat, his exhortation and his warning, who believes God, believes that he justifies the ungodly, then his faith is counted as righteousness. The illustration here is just as Abraham's faith is counted as righteousness, so ours will be too. So that belief, that, that faith, it's not just about the facts, but it's about the person of God. What does it look like? Well, if you skip back over or go to the end of Romans chapter 4, Let's pick up in verse 18, talking about Abraham. The story of Abraham is that he, he and his wife Sarah are barren. God promises that there will, become, there will come a promised child who eventually is Isaac. But when God makes that promise, they've never had kids. They're unable to have kids. They're old. I can say that because none of you here are their age. They're old. And they had many obstacles on their way. And that's what Paul's recounting here in verse 18. In hope, he, Abraham, believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told by God, promised by God, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. So I'm perfectly justified in calling them old. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, Get this, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Here is the scriptural definition of faith in verse 21. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. You and I need righteousness Righteousness only comes if God justifies us. 
How do we get the justification of God through Christ? It's by believing in Him and having faith. And that faith gets counted to us as our own righteousness, just like it did with Abraham. Apart from our works, purely as a gift. What is that faith? It's being fully convinced that God is not only able, but willing and will keep His promise. Peter tells us in Acts chapter 2, his sermon at Pentecost, what the promise is. He's quoting Joel chapter 2, and in Acts chapter 2 verse 21 he says, Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's the promise of God. You know what's remarkable about that text? Is in Joel chapter 2, the word for Lord that's translated Lord is Yahweh. The holy unspoken name of God in Hebrew. And yet in Acts chapter 2 in Greek, Paul takes that word Lord and he applies it directly to Christ. Anyone who calls upon the name of Jesus, Yahweh, will be saved. A further question still, what does it mean to call upon Him? It means to cry out in confession and desperation and passion, pleading to the judge who will judge with full rightness for mercy. Jesus shares a wonderful parable in Luke chapter 18 of a Pharisee praying and a tax collector praying. And he asked in that parable, who do you think is going to be justified based on their prayer? And the Pharisee stands and he says, God, I thank you that I'm not like anybody else here. I'm perfect and awesome and an asset to your team. And, you know, I keep the law and give money to the church there every Sunday. Sabbath day for them. And then Jesus says, the tax collector, he stands far off by himself. And he beats his breast in desperation and anguish. And he doesn't even lift his eyes to heaven. And all he can muster, all he can utter is, God, be merciful to me a sinner. And you know what Jesus says? It's that man who walks away justified. He uses the same word as Romans 4. Justified. Calling upon the name of the Lord is a confession, an admitting of the Utter, disgusting, condemnable nature of your sin in your own life. That you, yourself, are wretched and guilty. And undeserving of God. And all you have to bank on is to plead for His mercy. And then, here's where faith becomes very, very practical. As we say, the rubber meets the road. How do I know God will ever be merciful to me? How do I know 
I mean, how do I really know with any sense of assurance that when I call upon the name of the Lord, I'll be saved? How do I know that the atoning work of Christ gets applied to the account of Schuyler? And the answer comes back to the very same thing. Faith. Where you look at God and you say, in my limited knowledge of who you are, all I have to bank on is that you keep your word. I'm putting all my stock there. That you will save whoever calls upon you. Whoever admits cries out and asks you for forgiveness and salvation. Church, that's Christianity. That's the gospel. That we are not saved by our efforts, are we? We're not saved by our works. We are only saved by the pleasure of God and faith in Him, His goodness. It is the extravagant mercy and grace of an all-loving God to look at people who have so transgressed Him and say, if you will but trust Me, I will save you. If you will but turn to Me, I will hold you forever. If you will but confess and put all your stock into Me, I promise you, I will be enough. Life could end for any of us at any moment. And for many, it will end very quickly, suddenly. And eternity will not turn out how they expected. But today, by God's grace, you sit and you hear the message of Scripture. And you hear the calling of the living God from His living Word. And you know what that calling is? Trust in Me. Come to Me and trust in Me and you will be saved. Some of you, I hope, I pray that you have realized through the course of this morning that I am really not saved. I haven't trusted in God. I've only agreed with the evidence. I've only agreed with the facts. I haven't actually trusted in Him. I've never called out to Him. I've never asked for salvation. I've been too scared of what people may think. I've been too scared to admit that I don't have it together. I, I've worked so hard at building this reputation. I've built this reputation of being a, a good guy or a good gal and, and of being a Christian. And I, I've been going to church for years. I, I can't remember not going to church. And to admit right now that I'm not a Christian would cause everything in my life that was of value or foundation to crumble. Let me just tell you, that's a great thing. That's a great thing. And for those of us who have been saved by God's grace, 
Does this truth not stir you? That the God of heaven would have such mercy to save us? And to actually call us to trust Him and in that trust say, I declare you righteous through Christ. Maybe, Christian, you sit here this morning and you are plagued. You are absolutely plagued by the accusations of the enemy. Oh, you've, you've sinned too much this week. You're a hypocrite. I know, the, I know the truths of your heart and you're singing these praises, you're singing these songs, you're a hypocrite. You should be full of shame and you should be full of guilt. You're not good enough to be here. But don't tell anybody because you have a, a facade to keep up. God doesn't really love you. That salvation isn't actually real. That's too easy. That's too simple. You have Christian, the answer right here to the accusations of that enemy. I trust God. And his word says, trust me and you'll be saved. So wherever you're at, unbeliever, maybe today, I pray, I hope today is the day of your salvation. Christian, I hope you're stirred by the spirit of God to gratitude, to passion, to thanksgiving, to joy. And I also hope you're equipped to resist the filthy, evil accusations of the devil and stand in the confidence of Christ full of joy and service to God. The gospel will have its effect on us if we but let it. Father, your word is life-giving because you are life-giving. And in this word of yours, you make known the fact that we need to be saved and that we can be saved and how we are to be saved. I pray today that such truths would not, um, would not fall idly on our ears. I believe there's some reason, some eternal reason, that you have had us look at this text today. Let that reason be accomplished and known. O oh Spirit, would you convict the lost right now of their sin before a holy God, but also give them the hope of being called to Christ right now. And for your children this morning, build them up, equip them with the truth of the gospel to resist the lies of the enemy and to stand in the light and beauty of what Christ has done. Your gift is sweeter than can be told with human language. We have life in you. We thank you and we praise you. Let your word continue to have its full effect upon us. In Jesus' name and to your glory. Amen.